Our reading this morning is Revelation chapter 5. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, let's turn and seek him together. Let's pray. God, we come to lay our praises before your throne today. We, we don't come to exaggerate in any way the perfections that belong to you or the things that you've done. They are both beyond description, beyond our description, beyond the description of the greatest historians or theologians, even if we were to gather them together in one place and give them just that one task of adequately describing one aspect of the I am. But God you know the day that we live in. You know the kind of hearts and thoughts that we can have. We struggle to see the greatness that belongs to you. When our eyes are clouded with the present circumstances. Or the internal struggles of our own soul. 
We are so prone to shrink you and your words and your deeds to fit our present experiences as if our ups and downs could be the measure of you. So we ask that you would turn your face toward us this morning as you have turned your face and continue to turn it to so many today, gathering to worship you and not a God that they've imagined. We feel so inadequate. But you have opened our eyes. You have made Jesus of Nazareth to be the wisdom of every Christian, to be the prophet as well as priest and king. So we ask that you would teach us today that you would show us the hope that there is, that you would show us how in the world Paul can write and say that all things are caused by you to work together for good to those that are called by your name, to those that love you. We look around and we see so little evidence of that at times. We look within, we see little evidence. God, we can see in fellow Christians stumblings and doubts and fears and it could shake us if you had not so wonderfully shown us things that we need, things for a battlefield and a journey. Like John in the passage that Chuck read, we see a world that seems to be so chaotic and a church that seems so fragile. And then you showed him your son, the one who was worthy to come and to take the scroll from the hand of you, God the Father, and to be seated at your right hand on the dual throne of God and the Lamb and to break the seals and to bring to pass all that yet remains in your perfect plans to be accomplished. And that has to include today. And that has to include tomorrow, if there is a tomorrow. God, we look to you, the great king of heaven and earth. We look to the God-man, our brother, our kinsman, redeemer, the friend of sinners, Savior and Lord. And all our hope rests on what John saw, high and lifted up, rightfully adored, gathered representatives of your people falling down before him in that scene, the angelic hosts, ten thousands of ten thousands, innumerable, praising him as the king. And then all creation, all the galaxies, given voice to tell of the worth of the one that came and humbled himself and died and bought a people and made us fit to know you. So, God, we ask that you would give us the same kind of joy that John had, that you could fill our, our thoughts with the realities of Christ's rule, even when it seems mysterious to us, the choices that he makes. This morning, we pray that you would make us single-minded men and women and children with a united heart, one vision, just Him. And then, God, we pray, make that sight of Christ change everything. 
And we don't pray that you would do that here only, but everywhere that your word is preached, everywhere that individual or groups of Christians gather and turn their face toward you in hope. We ask it in your son's name and for his reputation. Amen. Well, I want us to look again at the theme of Christ as sufficient to disciple us. Uh, let, me, let me open with um, a little account of, a, of the life of a man that you probably know his name, John Bunyan, a Baptist in the 1600s who was put into prison for 12 years because of his convictions and preaching without willing, being willing to compromise. While in prison, he wrote what has become one of the most popular books in human history, and that is the little book, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. In 1938, someone calculated how many editions. I haven't been able to get information more modern than that. So way back in 1938, someone calculated how many different editions had been printed, and there were 1,300 different, different editions of The Pilgrim's Progress in over 200 languages back then, almost a century ago. Bunyan was an uneducated man. He grew up in an ungodly home, and as a young man, he was a tinkerer, all right? He tinkered, but not, that doesn't mean he just goofed off. It meant he was a man that went from town to town with a wagon, with some tools in it, and he would arrive in town, and he was kind of like a, a traveling repairman. And if you had pots and pans that needed mending, then he would, he would work on those. He had very little contact with Christian truths. Uh, he was notoriously foul-mouthed, and um, he was shocking to the people in the towns that he would go to, even when he was young. And he, um, his first acquaintance with Christianity really came when he got married. And the woman that he married was poor, like him. But she did have a few things in her dowry. She showed up with a couple of books. And one of them was a Puritan book. And Bunyan read that book. And God used that and other things to bring him to Christ. If you read his autobiography... Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. It's not an easy book to read. And it demonstrates one thing for sure. It was not easy for Bunyan to come to Christ and to find peace in Christ. There were a lot of struggles that God brought him through. But when he came, he devotes himself wholeheartedly. He becomes a pastor after he gets out of prison. He becomes a traveling minister because there are towns without healthy churches. And amazingly, as an undereducated man, he becomes an, an author, and he wrote over 60 books. He also wrote some poetry or some hymns, and I must say, that was not his best work, all right? Some people that write books are not good at their poetry. You have one of his poems in our hymnal. Grab a hymnal, 745. <laughs> this is a great hymn. Why have we never sung it? Because some of the language is so archaic, and you would have to be familiar with, you know, Pilgrim's Progress, that it wouldn't be distracting. It's a hymn about one who follows Christ as a disciple or as a pilgrim, using that picture from the Pilgrim's Progress of the Christian life, from conviction all the way to, you know, a victorious death and, you know, being brought to the great end. 
Here's what he writes. Who would true valor see? Who wants to see real courage? Let him come hither. One here will constant be, come wind, come other. There's one person that will be constant, no matter what. There's no discouragement that shall make him once relent his first avowed intent to be a pilgrim. There is nothing that will discourage this person from following Christ. So come look at him. Second verse. Whoso beset him round, whoever surrounds him with dismal stories. That that's, happens to a Christian. We hear a lot of sad things. We hear sad things about Christianity. We hear sad things about people we respected who have maybe fallen morally. Whoso beset him round with dismal stories do but themselves confound his strength the more is. Okay, that doesn't stop him from following Christ. No lion can him fright. He'll with a giant fight, but he will have a right to be a pilgrim. And that's a picture from the pilgrim's progress. You know, all the enemies that we encounter. Then verse 3. Hobgoblin nor foul fiend. That's the one that knocks it off of our normal singing list. Hobgoblin. Some of you who like Spider-Man think of the, a guy flying around in the green tights. That's not what he's talking about. He's just talking about any scary, any kind of monster thing, you know, spiritually. Hobgoblin nor foul fiend can daunt his spirit. He knows he at the end shall life inherit. Then fancies fly away or, you know, imagination, scary things. He'll fear not what men say. He'll labor night and day to be a pilgrim. Well, how is Bunyan so confident that the Christian, no matter what dismal stories or no matter what fiend, you know, terrifies them, that every Christian will be able to follow Christ to the end, that they will have a right to be a pilgrim. And that's what we've been talking about, asking ourselves, when I read the words of Scripture where Jesus himself describes the Christian as a disciple or a follower, as one who is under a lifelong, all-authoritative apprenticeship, um, is that for me? Could that possibly be my life? And the answer is yes. And how do we come to that answer? Because it's not always easy to see that. And the way we come to that, one of the great things we can do is we just look at the discipler. So a simple way of saying it is, if the teacher that will be your private tutor is God and man in one, who has taught every other believer throughout the generations, throughout the centuries, without exception, and brought every one of them safely to the goal, to the end of the journey. If you had that person as your tutor, can you not trust that he is enough to hand everything over and follow him? We've been looking at some of the perfections of Christ or his excellencies, the glorious sufficiency of Christ. And last week we looked at the fact that he is gloriously sufficient to manage all your affairs. And we talked about a couple of categories that have to exist before we're willing to let anybody manage any of our affairs, just in any area of life. And the first category is there has to be something in your life that's pretty important, and you realize you can't do it. We use the illustration of 
health. So imagine you bring your child to a doctor. You think it's just stomach problems, but you are just floored to hear the doctor say, it's not just stomach problems. There's going to be tests and the tests come in and the child has cancer. Now, if your child had cancer and the doctor said it is not hopeless, there is an expert in this particular procedure who lives in this city and I will recommend you to him and you will get in there and there's, if he, if you can get into him, there, there is great reason for hope. Would you say to the doctor, no, all I need is a scalpel and a book. I'll do the surgery at home. There are times where we feel so helpless, we are happy for the doctor to to hand everything over to the doctor and say, you do it all. We're, We're ready to do whatever you say. Spiritually, we have to come to the point where we see that you aren't going to fix yourself. You're not going to fix a marriage or a child. You're not going to fix a church or a nation. You are a person who cannot handle the problems that face you every moment. And so there must be someone that you can trust and hand it all over to, so to speak, to manage, to guide, to command. And last week we talked about the kind of person that we would be willing to hand things over to. We want a person who's has expert knowledge in the particular area that we need help in. We don't ask the plumber to do the surgery, do we? We don't ask the banker to do our surgery. But in each area of their expertise, we trust them. We want someone who has the ability, not just brain, but the ability and experience. We don't want to be the first person they practice on. We want someone who has the right to do what they say they can do. We don't want a surgeon who says that he can do it and he can do it and he's done it for others. But in our country, he has no right. He's not licensed. We, we want someone that also has the right to do it. And we want someone who has all of that and really cares about us. And in Christ, we have all that. But I want to add to that. I want us to consider finally in our, in our, in our weeks of looking at his sufficiency. He has all of that. But he is also the king. If if you can imagine a situation where you needed someone with the expertise and the ability and the right and the experience. And when you found that person and they said that they cared about you, that would be so wonderful. You would be the happiest person in the world. I have someone who will handle this, you know, this this critical matter. I, I can hand it over to them. I am so happy. And then if you found out they are the monarch of the nation with all of its resources and all of the right at their disposal to benefit you, how much happier you would be. Today we're going to look at a, at a topic that we know in our minds is true, but I want us to kind of be reminded of it, that Christ is sufficient to disciple any of us here because He has all that we've said, and on top of that, he has been given by the Father to the Christian as the king, the only king of everything. 
So we'll look at the general descriptions in the scripture about the rule of God. We'll, we'll get some eyewitness testimony where people have seen God rule in ways that are quite shocking. And it was recorded for us. And then we'll look at how all of that has been handed to the God man. Not just the eternal son, but the eternal son who now is united to our humanity, seated beside the father. Well, let's look at some of the facts of what the scripture says about Christ as the king. And it's necessary because no matter how many times we say this, you know, no matter how many times we talk about sovereignty, is God sovereign? Is he not sovereign? And we say, well, of course he's sovereign. And, but then I think what Tozer said is a constant temptation, even for people whose theology officially says God is sovereign. Tozer said this, the God of our generation is a helpless being who commands the respect of no thoughtful man. He no more resembles the supreme sovereign of the Holy Scriptures than does a dim flickering of a candle resemble the glory of the midday sun. That's what we're facing. We, we are constantly tempted to reduce God to a point where he doesn't resemble the God of the Bible at all. Well, let me give you some just basic statements of the, from the scripture about the sovereignty of God and so that we can kind of be refreshed and maybe correct some errors that start to creep in on the edges of our thinking. When we talk about the rule of God, rule is something that we do have contact with. We don't have contact with a great deal that God is. Some of his perfections we have no experience of. So eternality, you know, omnipresence, omniscience. You know, self-existing. These are things that we could not share. But power is something we understand. We have people who have power or authority all through our lives. From, from day one, there are people that are over us. And no matter how old you get, there will still be people who are over you. So whether we're thinking of the authority of a parent or a school teacher or a, a local civil servant, a, a policeman, or whether we're thinking of governors or presidents, or if you think of history with, with lords and masters, with kings and emperors, whatever title there has ever been that reflects authority, every one of those is a reflection of God, in a sense, sharing his authority with humanity. When, when Christ is in front of Pilate, a very ungodly man, so we're not only thinking of godly leaders, but every leader. Christ says to Pilate, you have authority, because Pilate says, I have authority, I could set you free, or I could have you killed. Does that not, doesn't that affect you, Jesus of Nazareth? And Christ says, you have authority, true, but it's only because my Father is giving it to you right now. Every authority from the smallest to the greatest is exercising authority that ultimately is sourced in our God, our Savior. And whether they abuse it or use it in the right way, it is still authority that he is allowing them to exercise. And when we talk about the authority of God, we don't want to think of human experiences of authority and then just multiply it with the calculator of your mind and say, well, God is like a king, but I mean, but he's really big. The authority of God, the throne of God transcends 
all other authorities. It is, in a way, different from all other authorities. Think about it. There are only two categories of existence. There is that which is God, and there is that which is not God. So we have God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and we have all the rest. Our experience of authority is here in the all the rest category, but when we speak of God as a king, he's not an earthly king. He is not just a great king. He's not the greatest king. He is the incomparable and the incomprehensible, the transcendent being who possesses authority as something that is essential to his nature. He was king before he created anything to rule. And he will be king forever, from everlasting to everlasting, from vanishing point in history of past to vanishing point in the future. He remains the unique and solitary monarch of everything. So David writes in Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. He's not talking about the skies. He's not talking about in the stars. He's talking about it transcends, it's far above all the chaos of human life. And his sovereignty, David says, rules over all. Think about it. This is a throne that has no beginning and has no end. There is no succession or dynasty in the rule of God because like him, it's eternal. Psalm 93 your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Therefore, again, when we talk about other rulers, they are distinctly different than him. No matter how big or little, they are not self-existing. They are, they are not eternal. They do not transcend us. Even when we have earthly kings, you know, and, and royal bloodlines, while... That may make sense to some people, but modern man looks back at that and says, what a joke. You have the same bloodline I have. We all came from Adam. We all come from the same family tree. It's a bit of an embarrassing family tree, but it's the same family tree. Your blood isn't royal. You don't have divine rights. You don't transcend. I mean, I really liked Queen Elizabeth, but she did not transcend all others on earth she was just one of us. God transcends. And that's why in Timothy chapter 6 in that first letter, Paul writes, He, God, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion, eternal rule. When we think of kings and emperors, when we think of masters or employers or bosses or parents or policemen, God is their master. God is their king or lord, their governor. When we think of the rule of God, you could say it in ways, I tried to think, how can I say this in a way that you just don't say, well, we already knew all of that. Because I do want you to stop and think. Because it's going to be applied. And like with what, Paul, uh, with what Chuck read in Revelation 5, what we see of God's rule in Scripture has to 
It has to change everything. God, his rule is unique because he only rules what he made and sustains. He doesn't rule anything he didn't make. Other kings rule things they didn't make. Always. Not God. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. For he founded it upon the seas. He established it upon the waters. And later Paul writes from a Roman prison about authority. And he says this. For by him, Christ, all things were created. Both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, whatever rank of power and rule they have, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things are held together. Christ also rules only where he lives. Other kings rule in places they don't live. I think I've mentioned to you before that if you go around visiting in Britain and you see these, the, the royal palaces, you know, Scotland, London, outside of London. So you go to these palaces and St. James and all those palaces. When you go visit them, they will have a, a flagpole and it will have the English flag or the Scottish flag, wherever the palace is. And it will have, of course, the flag for Great Britain. And it will, if the monarch is in residence, if they're there that day, it will have the monarch's personal flag. So I remember going to London and I had Catherine with me. Um, and we went to see one of the palaces. I think it was St. James. And there was the royal standard. I thought, well, what's that third flag? Well, that's Elizabeth's flag. She's in residence. She's there that day. God only rules where he is that day. God only rules where he is that moment. But unlike every other king we've ever heard of, God exists everywhere at once. There is only one king who cannot travel. The God that is everywhere. There is one king who cannot be absent from his land, the God who is everywhere. There is one king who can't fit in his palace. He can't fit in his capital city. He can't fit in his kingdom. He pours over the edge of every measurement humanity has ever given or any angelic mind could come up with. He is, and he is here he is with his most loyal subjects from the first moment that they are born to the day they die. And he is right in front of his most embittered opponents every moment. All, we read it this morning, all of us live and move about and have our existence in his presence. When we think of a God like that... That's why Jeremiah writes, Am I a God who is near and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I don't see him? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? I think the pinnacle, though, of all the things we could say, and I had to limit myself this morning, 
But when you think of the rule of God, it is unique in this sense as well. He rules with a perfect freedom. That is, he is unfettered, unrestricted. He can do, and he has the right to do, and it is always right and just and fair and equitable when he does whatever he pleases. With all that he rules, in every place that he rules, and in every generation that he rules. So he had the right when he called all things into existence, and it was not yet fashioned according to his will. He had the right to do what he wanted with every molecule of this new matter, Genesis. But he also has the right to do what he wants with your grandchild. Or you. Your marriage. Your nation. Sometimes people read the book of Revelation and they say, where is America? There's a red bear. That's got to be, well, that's got to be the communist. And there's this people and that's got to be those people. I don't see me. I don't see my country. Well, I don't know where America is in the book of Revelation. But I'm pretty sure... It is exactly where God wants it because he will do everything he wants with America. The right of God, the, the, it's not just the power. It's that he has the right as creator and sustainer, as the only perfectly pure being who does what's right. He has the right to do what he wants. The only restraint that there is, I said there's no restraint, well, there's no outward restraints. Earth can't take a vote and say, we prefer you not do this in our lifetime. There is a restraint, though, humanly speaking, and it is God's own character. He can do all his good pleasure all the time without anyone's permission. But he will never act in a way that goes against his perfect nature. And so that is not a terrifying thing to the Christian. Job, you think about Job, God has the right to bring difficult times into the life of a person who loves him most. And God has the right to bring very pleasant times into the life of a person that despises him or to rescue a people that are ignoring him. The first example, Job 42, at the end of Job's very difficult spell that God himself brought Job says this, I know that God, you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And God does not owe Job an explanation. But later in Isaiah 45, God speaks this way or Isaiah reports God in this way. In verse six, it says, God says, I am the Lord. and There is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. There is, it's a mystery to us, but there is in the person of God the absolute freedom to bring good days and to bring days that people never recover from. And he does it without ever once impugning 
his reputation. He is still the perfect God, the good God. Well, with those quick explanations, you can believe them or you can doubt them. You can love them or you can be angry at any being who talks like this to us. But that doesn't matter. He is still what he is. And I want to give you just some quick testimony. Recently, of course, with the big storms that pass through, it does remind us of the control of God over nature. And that is not only seen when terrible storms come and you are spared. We say, well, God rules over creation. And I mean, I remember the storms were coming through and I don't generally get too bothered about the storms. But if, they, if it's pretty bad, then I sit by a window and I crack the window and I listen. While Misty is in the bathroom saying, get in this bathroom, you're going to die. I'm like, I'll make it. It's only 10 feet. I'll get there. But I'm listening. So I'm listening. Sarah went upstairs. Daughter Sarah, not daughter-in-law Sarah. Sarah went upstairs. Daughter-in-law Sarah has her own story. Sarah went upstairs and to get something and she heard the, you know, the sound you always hear. And that's when the hail started crashing and she comes down and I'm listening. And I didn't get up because I can't hear very well. So I'm listening. I'm like, it's just fine out there, you know. So no wonder Misty goes to the bathroom and hides. But when you think of the storm, I mean, I prayed, God, be kind to us. Don't let us, don't let the people in the church, don't let the storm destroy. We deserve it, but don't let that happen. And nobody in the church was killed. So do I say at that moment, well, God ruled over the storm for the good of his people? Well, yes, but God ruled over the weather the, the day before the storm. And God ruled over the storm that did kill. And God ruled over the, the, the weather the day after. I mean, when we look at creation, or if we think of nature, God is ruling at each moment. Now, of course, in the ancient world, different false idols claimed, uh, their, their priest would say, well, my idol actually rules over a certain part of creation, whatever it is. And so you should give to my church because my God will rule over this part of creation. Baal, probably the most famous of the ancient world Canaanite gods, his claim to fame was that he said he rode on the clouds of storms. He brings water for your crops. He brings destruction. And in the Bible, you find the writer saying it is not Baal, but it is, it is Yahweh. It is Jehovah that controls nature. You could ask Noah and his wife and their sons and their wives who rules over the streams, the rivers, the ocean, the clouds. God rules over earth's water to judge all humanity in the days of Noah. You could ask Pharaoh's army, who rules over the seas? Is it one of the many gods of Egypt? No, it's not them. It's the God who, when we chased Israel into, uh, across the Red Sea, they walk over on dry land, and when our great army was in the midst of it, the waters returned and we were drowned. It is God. You could ask the disciples. You remember the account. They're in the boat. They're fishermen. They've been on the Sea of Galilee all of their life. 
And as they're there and the storm comes suddenly, they think, this is so bad, we won't live through this one. And Jesus is asleep in the boat, so they wake him up and say, don't you even care what happens? And Christ stands in the boat and talks to wind and sea, and they obey his voice. Now, the disciples were afraid that they were going to die, afraid of death, afraid of creation, of nature, one moment, and then the next moment, it says, they feared him. It's terrifying to be in the boat with the man that talks to nature, and it obeys him. We could get testimony from the great rulers of the world. He's the king of kings and the lord of lords, but what do, what do they say about him? Again, we could ask the Egyptians, ask Pharaoh. One day there was a son born in Egypt, Ramses II. He becomes the Pharaoh. He tells people he is the son of Ra, the sun god. He's divine and human. He's the one that is so cruel to the Israelites. And at the end, when Moses comes and says to let them go, they belong to God. And of course, he says, I don't know the God you're talking about. I know a lot of gods, but I don't know that God. The God of the Jews, he means nothing to me. And, and then God brings the plagues. How is it that Pharaoh endures 10 nationwide plagues? Why doesn't he buckle after the second or the fourth or the sixth? And the Bible explains it. Pharaoh's a wicked man, but God hardens Pharaoh in his pride so that no matter how bad it gets, he won't give in. And that allows Egypt to endure ten plagues and through these plagues, God demonstrates to the whole world of that day that there is no God like him. And then when he's done using Pharaoh and Pharaoh lets the Israelites go, of course, then he destroys Pharaoh's army. You could ask Pharaoh, does God really have the right? Yes. You could ask King Nebuchadnezzar, another hand-picked man, raised to power, given success. We don't have time to read all the verses, but God makes it very clear. I chose Nebuchadnezzar. I gave Nebuchadnezzar the world. He becomes the head of the Babylonian empire. He gobbles up all the little nations around him. And he becomes so inflated with his success that in Daniel chapter 4, God gives him a dream, not Daniel, but Nebuchadnezzar. And the dream warns Nebuchadnezzar, if you continue in your arrogance and you keep telling everybody you made this great Babylon, God will humble you for a purpose. Everyone will watch you, the head of the great empire, and everyone will get the report. God, not Nebuchadnezzar, rules Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has the dream. Daniel was called. Daniel interprets it. Nebuchadnezzar ignores it. And what God says comes to pass. The world may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm, all the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. God rules the world. God gives nations to who he wants. And sometimes God gives nations to the least of people. 
after the seven years of insanity where God strikes down Nebuchadnezzar and he has to live out in the back garden behind the palace, living like an animal, then his sanity is restored and we read these wonderful words. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes. This is a pagan monarch talking. I, Nebuchadnezzar, I raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored Him who lives forever and ever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. They're calculated and they come to a zero. But He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And who can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true. They're, they're right. Even when he makes you insane. And his ways are just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So you can ask Nebuchadnezzar, who rules? Who's the king's king? I'll give you another one, Cyrus. A few kings after Nebuchadnezzar, there's a king named Cyrus. We could ask him, who rules you? You were a king. 150 years before the birth of Cyrus, Isaiah penned Isaiah chapter 45. In which he says, God says to Israel, basically this. I'm going to judge you because you are not going to turn from your idols. And I will deal with you so thoroughly that Israel has never again turned back to physical idolatry. But after 70 years, I will have mercy on you and you will not be destroyed. I will bring you back. And settle you in the land again. And I will be merciful. Gracious. And he chose the man. That he would use. Cyrus. Who is a century and a half. Yet to be born. God gives the name. It drives scholars. Who think the Bible is a book full of myth and fiction. It drives them crazy. That. God named him. I mean, it's one thing to be, you know, a person on the tabloids and say, one day a great country will rise up. And, and then, you know, and then someone says, so-and-so predicted this. But it's another thing to say 150 years from now, there will be a man who will return you after 70 years in Babylon. I will tell you his name. So there's no confusion over how this occurred. I did it. His name is Cyrus. And in chapter 45, listen to what Isaiah writes when God speaks to Cyrus Prophetically, he's not born yet. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. Cyrus is a godless man, but he's God's chosen instrument. Whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you. He says to Cyrus, I will make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. So when your enemy has a great fortress with bronze doors and iron bars, it doesn't matter. God will have broken through them. I will give you the treasures of darkness 
and the hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you. God, I'll arm you. I'll dress you in armor, though you have not known me. That men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun, from the furthest east to the furthest west, that the whole earth will hear that there is no one besides me. No wonder Isaiah writes, God reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless. To to whom then would you compare him? And who will be his equal, says the Holy One. During the time of Nebuchadnezzar, you could ask people that were ruled by him, like Daniel. Who really rules? Is it Nebuchadnezzar or is it the God that you worship? Who is Nebuchadnezzar's king? Who's ruling? You can imagine in Daniel's day, it did not feel easy to believe that God was ruling. The prophets had to be sent with message after message saying, this is God. It's not Babylon. This is your God. It's not the gods of Babylon. It's not their armies. It's not their military strategists. It's not their wealth and size. It is your God who is disciplining you. And that's why you're here. And so when Nebuchadnezzar conquers Judah, he takes the cream of the crop. He takes the brightest young men to Babylon and puts them in school. You have to go to University of Babylon because he intends for them to grow up highly educated, capable young men trained in Babylonian thought. And then he can send them back to Judah years later and they will be Jews. They look like them. They, they talk like them. But Jews who think like Babylonians, so they'll be cooperative with the empire. It's quite a good plan. Daniel is one of those men that's taken. But while Nebuchadnezzar had very specific plans for ruling through men like Daniel, God intends something very different. And over and over, God brings these crisis moments either to Daniel or to his three godly friends or to Nebuchadnezzar or to his grandson, Belteshazzar, and to Darius the king after him. All these major stories that we know about Daniel, but do you see them correctly? It is not Daniel being a strong and courageous young man. It is God ruling. And God makes Daniel more effective than hundreds of Jewish missionaries could have been had he sent them to Babylon. Because over and over, I want to read you a couple of examples. God works in such a way that he overrules Babylon's greed and the emperor says to the whole world, Daniel and his friends, their God is God. How could you get him to say that if you were to do missions? Could, could you get to Nebuchadnezzar? Could you get him to listen to you? Could you get him to embrace a God of the Jews and reject all of his gods? But God does that. Daniel 2. 
Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Nobody can interpret it. Nobody can tell him what the dream is. Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill all these people that he's been paying as spiritual advisors. And Daniel is part of this group now. And Daniel goes and asks the Lord, and you know the account. God tells Daniel both the dream and the interpretation, which nobody can do but God. Daniel gives the account back to the king. And then in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar says this. uh, The Bible says this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel. And he gave orders to present to him, to Daniel, an offering and fragrant incense. So he rewards him. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is the God of all gods. He is the Lord of all kings. Years later, his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are commanded to worship a giant golden statue of Nebuchadnezzar. They won't do it because they worship only one They are put in the furnace, this giant furnace, and they are unharmed because of God. They're brought out and Nebuchadnezzar is floored. And this is what he says. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that person shall be torn limb from limb And their houses will be reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who can save in this way. As an old man, you know the story, a new king has come, Darius, the Mede, he's not a Babylonian, he's taken over. Daniel goes from being the third most powerful man in the country, you know, from a nobody to the third most powerful, to now there's a new king. And Darius likes Daniel, but Darius is tricked by jealous people. And he makes a decree, if you pray to any other god than our gods, well, you're going to be put to death. And Daniel, they know, prays to God. Three times a day, he throws open the windows of his house and looks toward Jerusalem and prays to the living God. And Daniel refuses to stop. And of course, he is arrested and he is to be executed. And the way they'll do it is the particularly cruel way of throwing him in a den with lions who have not been fed, and they'll kill him. Darius comes the next morning to see what's, what's happened to this man, Daniel. Is he like every other man that gets executed that way? Is he gone? Is he dead? And he sees that God has protect, protected Daniel, and in Daniel 6, Darius gives another empire-wide decree. It's like God turns the pagans into the preachers, and he says this, I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. He is the living God, enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Can I give you one more king? King Herod. King Herod. Book of Acts, King Herod. There are a lot of King Herods in the New Testament. So it's not the King Herod that put the little babies to death when he heard that a king was born. This is a different King Herod. He's unpopular with the Jews because he's not really Jewish. He's not from the Davidic line. He is a plant, a political plant by Rome. So he's part Jewish, 
But the Romans put him there because he, he'll cooperate. So the Jews really don't like him. Herod decides that he can get some street credibility with Jews and get them off his back in the book of Acts by persecuting Christians, which, of course, they want him to do. So their religious authority is now augmented by his political authority. And Herod arrests in Acts chapter 12, he arrests a number of Christians, including James, the brother of John, one of the inner three. James, John, Peter, with Christ intimately all through those years. He puts James to death. He has him killed in front of the Jews, executed. And they are very happy with Herod. And Herod likes this new public relations stunt, and he does it again. He arrests Peter. Now that is two of the three of the, of the inner circle of disciples of Jesus. You can imagine, Stephen, the deacon, is dead. Other Christians are being hunted. They're fleeing the capital city. James, one of the inner three, is dead. Peter, the other one of the inner three, is arrested and awaiting execution. You can imagine that the, the Christian church, we cried out to God when James was arrested, and he's dead. And we cry out to God now for Peter. But what if he's killed as well? Will this fledgling little religious movement be destroyed before it even gets rooted? And, of course, in chapter 12, God sends an angel. Peter is in an inner part of a prison. There's outer guards, inner guards, and then there's the two guys that are chained to him in his cell, the two guards. The angel walks through all of that. The chains fall off Peter. Peter thinks he's having a dream. It's not till later he realizes this is all real. He gets up and follows the angel out of the first cell and out of past those first guards and the next guards and out of the city. The angel departs and Peter realizes it's real. He goes to a, Christ, to a house where Christians are praying for him and he knocks on the door and, and the servant girl that sees him can't believe it's him. She thinks it's a ghost. She runs back and says, it looks like Peter's at the door and all the people praying for his release say, it can't be Peter. It's got to be his ghost. They probably killed him. And of course, it is Peter. I want... I mention that not because you need more examples, but I don't want us to ever think that when you cry out to the Lord for something good, like the protection of a missionary, of an apostle, James, and Jesus from the throne of heaven allows James to be put to death, but rescues Peter, I don't want you to believe the lie of the enemy that God is not ruling. Why is James dead and Peter alive? John wrote so much of the New Testament. Peter wrote in the New Testament. You could think, surely God, James, he was with you like those two men. He would have had so much to say like they did that the others didn't get to hear. Couldn't you have used him? And the answer is that it was not the pleasure of King Jesus to keep James alive. For the good of the kingdom, James is martyred. For the good of the kingdom, Peter is rescued. Eyewitness testimony, anywhere you look. I want to mention two more, and then we're going to have to bring it to a close. There are two, 
I, I want to mention these because they're not big and significant looking. One is godly parents who had a very ungodly son after they raised him just the way God said to raise him. Samson. An angel meets Samson's mother and says, your son will be the next deliverer of Israel. They are now under the Philistines. Judged for idolatry. Book of Judges. Okay? They're under judgment and your son will be the deliverer. Now here's how you are to raise him. Very specifically. And there's all these specific instructions. Angel leaves. Mom tells dad, we're going to have a son. And he's going to be the next deliverer. An angel told me. And the dad said, well, what did he say we have to do? Well, we have to do exactly like this. The dad's worried. Maybe she doesn't remember it just right. Maybe we're going to fail. So they pray. And the angel returns and gives the message to both of them. So that dad won't be worried that mom didn't write it all down correctly. And they do what God tells them to do. But the first account you have of Samson as an adult is he is looking at a woman who he thinks is attractive. The exact words in Hebrew is, she's right in my eyes, which is in a book where the big problem is people don't do what's right in God's eyes. They do what's right in their own eyes. So Samson is like the pagans. He's like the unbelievers. She looks good to me. It's right in my eyes. She's not a Jew. She worships idols. His mom and dad say, oh, Samson, can't you fall in love with a girl that loves God? And Samson says, no, her. And then the scripture says this. They did not know that this was from the Lord. That is, that God was ruling over Samson's lustful, proud, selfish heart. To accomplish good, even through his wrong choices. Because, the Bible says, God intended, basically, to start a fight with the Philistines. And Israel was not going to do that. So, you can read the accounts how Samson has strife with, with these Philistines. And God gives him extraordinary power. And he becomes the leader who delivers them. There's another example, in case you want one more. There is a couple that are mentioned in Judges 4. It is a husband and wife of an insignificant family. They're not even Jewish. They're actually descended from Moses' father-in-law. And so because it was Moses' father-in-law, they're allowed to have some property in, in Israel. And in the midst of a very important historical account of war. And we've reached a place now where the Canaanites have all their armies here with Sisera, the, the general. And the Jews have this tiny little army under a woman and a man, Barak and, Sam, uh, Barak and Deborah. Barak, the man, won't go on his own. So Deborah, a woman that God raises up because the men are cowardly. And she is a godly woman. She becomes really the leader behind Barak. So Barak, listening to her, gathers a small army. The Canaanites have an enormous army. They have all these chariots. There's no hope of defending themselves. And they're stationed there. And the Bible is describing all of this in Judges 4. It talks about how in verse 10, and so-and-so lined up his armies here. 
And then in verse 12, and -and so-and-so did this in the war. But verse 11, between verse 10 and 12, is so weird. This is what it says. Talking about big armies, then it says, Now Heber the Kenite, that's the man's name, Heber the Kenite, had separated himself from the Kenites. He left his family from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. So you have this account in Judges of the military procedures. So here's what these guys are doing, and here's what Israel was doing. And in, right in between, someone sticks a verse, God does, and says this. There's a guy named Heber. He belonged to that Kenite tribe. He left his family a little bit before this event, and he moved up, and he, he decided to relocate to this, this part of, the, this part of uh, Israel, which is near the battle, years prior. Then he goes back to describing the battle and how God destroyed the armies of the Canaanites. But Sisera, the general, escapes. You know the account. This is why we're, we learn about this Heber. Later in the chapter, in verse 17, we find out that Heber has a family. He's married. His wife is named... Um, well, I've lost her name. Jael? There we go. Jael. Now Sisera fled. The general of the enemies fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, who moved to that area for some strange reason. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. So there's peace between the Canaanites and their king and this tribe of Kenites. But one of their group just leaves and moves over somewhere else, and that happens to be under the rule of God. The tent that the general, Sisera, stops at, he can't go any further, he can't run anymore, so he goes in and he says, well, these people are Kenites, so we have, a, we have a peace treaty with these people. I don't know what they're doing here, but I'll take it. He tells the woman, "If any, would you stand at the front of the tent, big tent, and uh, you... If you see anybody that says they're looking for me, you tell them I'm not here. And he laid down to rest and she brought him milk and he fell asleep and she took the tent peg and she took a hammer and she, she drove the tent peg through the general's head and pinned him to the ground, dead. And then when the Jewish armies later are searching the region, she says, you're looking for the guy that's in the back room. He's dead. God moved Heber and his wife away from their family to some obscure place in Israel because he intended her to kill Sisera and free his people. What does that have to do with us? In Ephesians 1, Paul says every bit of that authority has been handed To Jesus of Nazareth. At the end of that chapter he prays and says. God these people need to understand the power that's at work in them. It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. It is the same power. It's the same force that caused him to ascend to heaven. And that seated him at the father's right hand. And 
Then he goes to this wonderful description. Verse 21. So he seats him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age but in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And he gave him as head over all things to the church. Do you see all the authority that we've been reading about in God? And we've been trying to look at some specific examples so it doesn't just stay kind of abstract in my head. God is sovereign. All of that is now handed to the God-man. A true human. Jesus of Nazareth, who is God and man. This true human rules creation. Philippians 2, because of the great work and his obedience and going to the cross, he is rewarded with the title Lord. He, as God-man, as mediator, is no longer the suffering servant, but now is the indisputable master of all things, all people, all events. It is the Father's great reward. That the Son be the recognized Lord and be given all power and all authority to do all the Father's goodwill with all people, all things, all events, all places, all times without having to give any of us an explanation. He sits him at the highest place of dignity above all those expressions of authority, principalities, powers, He gives them a name above every name. Every title that has ever been in any language of someone who is authoritative. And every title that is yet to be invented in any language for people who have great authority. You can collect all those names and none of those titles reach anything near to his title. All that has been or all that ever will be, he is Lord and he is the gift of the Father, Paul says, from prison. He is ruling right now as a gift from the Father to the church. He has given you a discipler who is the sovereign. My favorite commentator on these books, a Scottish guy named John Eady, says this. Speaking of Christ's rule, there is no exception. He has no equal There is no superior to Christ, not simply among those with whose titles we are so far acquainted with, you know, human history. But in the wide universe, there is no name so high as his name. And among all its spheres, there is no renown, no reputation that matches his. These principalities stand beneath his throne, but Christ sits at the right hand. The brow that once was crowned with thorns wears the diadem of universal sovereignty now. The hand nailed to the cross holds the scepter of unlimited dominion. He who lay in the tomb has ascended to the throne of an unbounded empire. Jesus, the brother man of the believer, is Lord of all. Well, we've... Come to the end. What do you do with it? Well, for over a month, we've been looking at this question. Could I be a real disciple of Jesus in 2023 with all of my baggage, 
with all of the uncertainty of the future, with the family I have, with the church I have, in the nation that I live in? And the answer is yes. He is sufficient. Instead of going along at a poor dying rate, you know, stumbling and distracted and hoping somehow life will get better, why not be like the hymn writer, hymn 135, I found the pearl of greatest price. My heart must leap for joy. But what will your excuse sound like if you reject him? I know what it sounds like now to a Christian, but what will it sound like on that final day when you see him that we have so poorly described in our services and you are immediately perfectly aware of how sufficient he was to save and rule you and your excuses will be so humiliating so embarrassing will you even say them will they somehow affect your judgment so that god says well i commanded you to follow him to trust him to hand everything over to him to follow him all the way no matter what the cost even if you have to give up family and friends and you didn't but of course you had these fears and you didn't know how you would make it and what about your sins and no when you see him and you realize this is the one i i told everyone well i would like to be a christian but i just can't seem to do it and you use that cloak that lie what you're saying is i just don't think christ is enough for me and then you see him how will your judgment be any easier? It will be made so much worse when you say, I remember the series of sermons and those passages, but I didn't believe. And now that I see reality, my excuses have made me more criminal, not less. Life or death the adventure of living for the king or the mud puddle of living for yourself another hour. I don't know how any of us resist the allure, the pull of the offer of Christ. Why would you live another hour for you, the worst of pretenders? Paul ends 1 Corinthians with these shocking words. He says, The greeting here is in my own hand. Paul, he wrote it himself. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Come quickly, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen.